Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. If democracy were purely about elections, one could say that 2024 will be a great year for people power. The world's four biggest democracies, that's India, the United States, Indonesia, and Pakistan, will go to the polls at some point in the next year. But the reality is that democracy has been in crisis for years. The signs are clear to see in countries around the world. A weakened press, disputed elections, the rise of strongman leaders, and so much else. It's easy to be despondent about these trends. But when you take a big step back, you might see a different picture. And historians are particularly good at doing that. Heather Cox Richardson started writing a daily Facebook essay in 2019 amid the turmoil of former President Donald Trump's first impeachment. Her post soon became one of the world's most popular newsletters, with more than a million subscribers on Substack. She's built on those essays in a hopeful new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Now, one of the things that really stayed with me in our conversation had to do with storytelling. You see, strongman leaders are great storytellers. They tell people how hard their lives are, how things used to be better, and how they alone can fix it. And there's only one way to fight back, and that's by telling better stories, real stories, but ones also rooted in heroism and framing the importance and power of one vote. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to have to let you hear it from Heather Cox Richardson. As always, subscribe to FP to watch these discussions live on video and to ask questions. There's a big 50% discount going on our site. Just use the code FPLIVE when you sign up. Let's dive in. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to FP Live. I'm thrilled to be here. And before we talk about the book, let me tell you that I am such a fan of foreign policy. I am a subscriber. I read it every time an issue comes out. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to be here today, simply to be part of, of the foreign policy uh, project. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. And really, the pleasure is all ours. And also, congratulations. Uh, the book is out today. Uh, we have an excerpt up on our site, and many of our readers are reading it. I just finished reading the book. Uh, it is superb. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's really a reflection, I think, of this public conversation we've been having for at least four years on my websites, but you know, longer than that in the United States. And as a, as a result, I think it really belongs to a lot more people than me. So you went for a hopeful title, Democracy Awakening. Why is that? It's funny, a lot of people have pointed to that because one of the things I hear all the time is people being full of despair. And to me, I always say I am so much more hopeful now than I was 
you know, six or seven years ago when all of these trends toward authoritarianism were going on and no one was paying any attention. Now people have woken up and they're paying attention. And this really resonates for somebody like me, whose first book was on the Civil War and who studied the Republican Party so thoroughly because th th we look very much like the United States did in the 1850s when, you know, in 1853, the elite Southern enslavers were in fact almost in full control of the United States government. And they had assumed that control over the space of about 20 years. With the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, all of a sudden Northerners who hadn't been paying attention woke up and went, wait a minute, wait a minute, what just happened to our democracy? By 1856, they had started a new political party to stand against that. By 1858, you had uh, this rising politician, Abraham Lincoln, beginning to articulate a set of values for that country. By 1860, voters had elected Lincoln and put him into the White House. And by 1863, we had completely redefined what it meant to be an American. So in the space of less than 10 years, we go from what is articulated as an oligarchy, this is literally what the elite Southern enslavers are talking about, to what Lincoln called the new birth of freedom in the, in the Gettysburg Address. So the idea of democracy awakening in a funny way to me was sort of saying, yeah, you know, let's look. We're in 1854. I was struck by how you made FDR's New Deal sort of a section of the book. And I was wondering why you think it's so important to the moment we're in today. FDR's New Deal, which he launches in 1933, when he takes the White House after the election of 1932, is a dramatic reworking of the modern American government. Now, it's not novel. He quite deliberately reaches back, first of all, to his somewhat relative Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the last century, and Theodore Roosevelt and FDR both reach back to Abraham Lincoln. And what that means is a government that is explicitly dedicated to making it possible for ordinary Americans to be treated equally before the the law, to have access to resources, and to have a right to have a say in their government. And that use of the federal government after 1933 to address the excesses of the 1920s, when in fact the Republican Party, which controlled the government in that period, essentially erased the gains of the progressive era and quite deliberately turned the, the government over to businessmen. And that's not a slur. They're very clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's actually a really interesting time to read political ideology. But with the collapse of that system, FDR institutes a government that does three basic things. It regulates business. It provides a basic social safety net. That's where we get the Social Security Act, thanks to Francis Perkins, who's in, in the, the labor secretary position. And it promotes infrastructure, the Tennessee Valley Authority, for example. And that government is extraordinarily popular among most Americans who believe that the 1920s and the crash and the depression that followed it were the fault of those Republican policies in the 1920s. But crucially, that government, the one that we have lived under since 1933, always had people who hated it. And they tended to be businessmen who didn't like regulation. They didn't really talk a lot about taxes in that, in that early period. They worried about regulation. And the racist Southern Democrats at the time, they're going to switch sides in the 1960s, who uh, opposed the idea of having any sort of uh, equal 
access to resources by Black Americans or equality before the law, or certainly access to vote. And the reason that I didn't talk about civil rights in that period is because while FDR flirts with the idea of making sure the federal government doesn't discriminate based on race, it's really not until we get Truman and then, of course, Eisenhower after 1953, who really begin to use the federal government to promote the idea of civil rights within the states, really trying to enforce the 14th Amendment. Now, the reason I just gave you all that amount is because what that does is it sets up a government that uh, regulates business, provides a basic social safety net, promotes infrastructure, and protects civil rights. That liberal consensus is embraced by both Democrats and Republicans, but it's opposed by a very small group of largely businessmen, social conservatives who don't want women to have rights, and racists who don't want, want people of color and Black Americans to have rights. And that small faction is the one that now dominates the Republican Party and is trying to erase that federal government, the one that we had really operating from 1933 until 1981 when Reagan starts to roll it back. Then we've had rollbacks from 81 to 2016, and then uh, former President Donald Trump actively went after all those aspects. So, so much of our history has really, since the 1930s, been a struggle of that small group of people to get rid of a government that still a majority of Americans of all parties really like. So the New Deal, even though most people think it's stuck in the past, is in fact right on the table in front of us today, quite literally being argued about over, for example, what the Freedom Caucus, the extremists in the Republican uh, conference, are trying to force through. So that's why the New Deal is such a big deal in this book. Right. As you were speaking, it just it was occurring to me that there were so many echoes in the present moment um, of that history. And does it strike you then when you take the wider span of U.S. history, does history always repeat itself? Or when you look at the current moment, is there something new and exceptional about where American democracy is today? Well, so... History never obviously repeats itself, but uh, but I always like to say people are just people. We do the same thing. So there are certainly ways in which the present reflects our old history and, you know, and we can draw those lines. So I would argue that where we are right now has long strands going back before even the establishment of, of the United States with the Constitution, even before that. But what we where we are right now that's new is we have one of two major political parties actively trying to destroy democracy. Now, we've certainly had people in the past who wanted um, to destroy democracy, but they have not been leaders of a major political party. So the idea that we have this now, people actually running the Republican Party who are trying to tear down our democracy, is absolutely new. We had an echo of that before in 1879 when uh, a powerful faction of the Democrats at the time was trying to do something similar. But they got shut down within about four months and, and we never heard from them again. The, the Democratic Party rebuilt itself in an entirely different way. So we've had glimmers of it before, but what we're seeing now is absolutely new. You know, we often take subscriber questions uh, on these discussions, and several subscribers, including Eric Schwartz and others, have written in to ask about technology and whether, you know, as we're discussing whether this moment we're in is special or unique, you know, whether technology has just supercharged misinformation and if that is you know unique in history 
Um, and perhaps because of that, are we losing our grip on reality? I mean, with the proliferation of phrases like alternative facts or post-truth societies, do you see any parallels in history and therefore any lessons in history for us today? Yes. Disinformation is not new at all. I mean, quite literally in the early Republic, there was a trick that one could exercise, which is simply to say, because there's not, it's not very easy to get information around, to say that your opponent had died. You know, which it's very hard to run a campaign if everybody thinks you're dead. And so we've got these people scrambling going, no, 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 I'm still alive and trying to prove that they're still alive in a time when you don't actually have access to cameras, for example. So disinformation is not new. It is absolutely true that it has been supercharged. And that seems to me something that the United States simply must grapple with. And I'm not suggesting other people shouldn't, but of course, I'm an expert in the U.S. Uh, and there are ways to do that without infringing on the First Amendment for doing things like adjusting algorithms and requiring some sort of regulation of the way that algorithms amplify fake speech, for example. That being said, one of the things that I think is important to recognize in this moment that is so important is that disinformation, and not simply disinformation, but the other ways in which you create a false political reality, are in fact part of a political experiment that was articulated most effectively by um, people in Russia, by political theorists in Russia, as political technology or virtual politics. And that idea of creating a false reality that would enable you to overturn a democracy by votes as opposed to by simply taking away votes is important in this moment for, I think, three major reasons. One, because it's helped us to get where we are. Second, because there were five pieces of political technology when they articulated them and wrote them down. And of those five things, uh, some are flooding the zone with as Steve Bannon would have said, disinformation, running false candidates, that is candidates who have a name that echoes that of your opponents so that the vote is split and therefore your candidate gets in. We've seen that in Florida, especially having candidates switch sides after they're elected. And the other piece that fascinates me of virtual uh, politics or political technology is blackmail. And that is one that we don't talk about in the United States. I am not making any accusations, but it does seem to me odd that we would have seen the exercise of four of the five elements and not that fifth element. So I think that's interesting. The other reason I think that it's interesting is because of this. And this is what really fascinates somebody like me who studies ideology. The people who conceived of this idea of overturning democratic governments by political technology tell you how to do it. They tell you how to get people to vote to get rid of their own democracy. But I have never seen that follow-up. That is, what happens when a population recognizes that it has been manipulated? And I think that that may very well be what we're seeing in the United States today. That is, Political theorists like Hannah Arendt, who studied the rise of totalitarianism, talked a lot about how apathetic voters could be weaponized by a strong man, but that loyalty could not be translated to somebody else. So they become apathetic again. And that, I think, is something that people who are thinking about the future of the Republican Party are very concerned about. Can Trump's voters be taken to a different candidate? I think the answer to that is no. I think it's pretty clear if you look at how Trump is standing in the political primaries, the Republican primaries right now, that his popularity cannot be transferred to somebody else. So people can be apathetic. 
they might become so furious at the people who duped them that they become fierce partisans for the other side. And that makes me think of so many of the former Trump administration officials who are now leading the charge against Trump and his ilk in the present. But then there's a third group, and this is the one that, that really interests me right now. And this is all speculative, by the way. I'm just watching the, the ebbs and flows. Um, I wonder if some of those people who recognize that they have been tricked just want to burn it all down. They don't care any longer about governance. They don't care about the future. They just want to hurt somebody as badly as they feel they have been hurt. And that sort of nihilism is, I think, something we're seeing right now in the United States. And I don't really think we know where that goes. So I think the question of technology and its effect on our democracy is crucially important. I think we have to address it. And I think that that is an area in which a lot of people, not only in the United States, but also around the world, are going to have to be doing some pretty serious theoretical thinking going forward. Mm, gosh, yes, there's so much there. Let's talk about authoritarianism. So you wrote in the book that it wasn't social scientists who ended up explaining Hitler's rise. And instead, it took writers, philosophers, and historians to do so because they understood the use of language. That really stayed with me. You go on to describe how strong men play on groups that think they've been left behind. They downplay real economic conditions that created their problems. And instead, they spin an us versus them tale of how they were cheated out of power. As I was reading that, it just all sounded so familiar to me. Strong men as storytellers. And it could apply to so many leaders around the world right now. But the question that I had as I was reading um, your work was, if this formula is so obvious, why do people around the world keep falling for it? Well, it's a great story. I mean, I think that, and, and just to be clear, uh, what we're talking about is if you get a population that is dispossessed in some way, economically, politically, uh, religiously, socially, culturally, they are um, ripe for the picking, if you will, by a strong man who offers to return them to relevance again. And that strong man offers to do so by saying, I can fix the problems here simply by getting rid of those people who are the ones who cause those problems. And who those people are doesn't matter. It's really, it matters to them a lot because they're about and, to get into it. And Trump support. said those words. He said, I alone can fix this. That's right. That's right. And the argument though, is that it's easy. You know, all you have to do is follow a set of laws that were laid down either by God or by nature. And those people are refusing to do that. And if you do that very quickly, you dispossess population, will become relevant again, will become powerful again. It's a really easy story. And I think one of the things actually that Eisenhower pointed out, it's that very famous letter he wrote when the man said to him, just tell us what to do. And Eisenhower said, no, I'm not going to do that. You have to think this through yourself because that's what a democracy is. One of the things that Eisenhower says in that letter is he says to the guy who wrote to him, listen, the modern world is complicated. There really aren't easy answers. And you have to be willing to recognize that we can't fix everything with a magic wand. And so participating in a modern democracy is hard. It takes a lot of work. It takes good, strong public education, which I think has been lacking in terms of our civic identity, our civic understanding. But it also, I think, is 
um, I, I likened this recently to the Hardy Boys, which, you know, a series people may or may not know, but, but there are books that young people gravitate toward because they have very easily followed plots where there's always a clear answer and there's enough novelty that your interest is kept, but you know the characters, you know how it's going to come out, and you know at the end of the day it's going to be satisfying. And, you know, one of the things that people point out about the stories that former President Trump tells is that they really mirror those of professional wrestling, that yep. there is an emotional payoff at the end. But that idea of gravitating towards simple stories seems to me to be a human one, but also one that really reflects American culture since things got really complicated after World War II. And I will point to the fact that the top grossing movie in 1977 was Star Wars, where there is one lone guy who does not have an education. Remember, he wants to go to school and his, his uncle won't let him. He's in the country. He ends up following a guru who reinforces his gut sense of things and he takes down an empire. It's an incredibly satisfying mythic story, if you will, but one that was mirrored just three years later when Reagan won the White House based on a very similar story. So what I'm hearing from you is that strong men are great storytellers. They're very good at sort of playing to some of our basest instincts, simple stories, for example. Um, they like to hearken to the past. They like revisionist history. So what kinds of stories should Democrats be trying to tell to appeal to people and to appeal to people's better instincts? Strong men appeal to worst instincts. Remember, there is always within those stories heroism. There is always the idea that you matter, that you, the voter, are going to do something great. And I think that it is not insignificant that many of the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, believed they were recovering the United States. Yeah, they I mean, were patriots, some of them. They were patriots. They described themselves as patriots. So one of the one of the things that you bring up here that I think is really important is that it is not effective to continue to say, well, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. That didn't happen. That's a lie. Because what that simply does is reinforces the narrative that is already poisoning the entire political system. It reinforces the boxes, if you will, the outlines that the strong man has set up. What you've identified is exactly what uh, moving us forward requires, and that is providing a different narrative that enables people to feel heroic, enables them to feel like they're doing something good with their vote and with their lives, but that's grounded in reality and that offers uh, a way forward. And that is actually one of the things that I was trying to do in the third section of Democracy Awakening is to say, you know, this idea of a perfect past is an authoritarian democracy. It's a story that says, you know, we have to get rid of those people. And those people, by the way, are the majority of us, people of color, black Americans, women, that that old authoritarian vision really is an attack on the, the American majority. But the real American history has always been inclusive. It has always involved everybody. It has always been community-based. And it has always been the story of expanding people's access to resources, but also to the right to equality before the law and to have a say in their society, both of which are absolutely traditional in the United States. They're, they're outlined in the Declaration of Independence. So one of the things that I was hoping to do is to say, let's start talking about 
what America really is and empowering people to do what echoes our best moments. And that one of the things that's really interesting about that is if you look at the heroes to which the radical right can appeal right now, who have they got in their history? They can take the founders and skew what they said and, and create false images of them. But those of us who are talking about the United States as a, as a country that is inclusive and expands democracy and is a, a positive force, you know, we've got everybody. We literally have everybody on our team except the KKK and the former Confederates and, you know, the neo-Nazis and, you know, they can have them. So one of the things that is interesting to me is the degree to which a true narrative of our country really gives all of our greatest American heroes to those of us who are defending democracy today. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. So sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a really good discount. President Biden doesn't give many interviews to journalists, but you have interviewed him. I'm curious what you make of his presidency and his ability to be a storyteller uh, in the way in which you're describing. So Biden is, I think, overturning the past 40 years of American history in which supply side economics based Republican vision was employed to get rid of the New Deal states. So between 1933 and 1981, we have what economists call the Great Compression, which is when the, the government regulation, social safety net, et cetera, compress the difference between the incomes and wealth, two separate things, of people at the bottom of the United States and people at the top. That uh, turns into the Great Divergence after 1981 with the cuts in regulation and the, the original set of tax cuts under Reagan in 81 and then in 86. And it has gotten to the point where now we have this extraordinary gap between the very wealthy and the very poor and the rest of us, not even the very poor in the United States. Biden is quite explicitly trying to overturn that, trying to get rid of that and using not simply uh, executive orders, for example, or a few laws, but rather using what he calls a whole of government system, which is really interesting. If anybody is curious about this, you can follow it through uh, a lot of declarations that come out virtually every day from the different uh, administrative positions in the in the White House and you know, in the, uh, from the different cabinet secretaries and all that. And what they're trying to do is to restore the idea of a great compression, I think, but also a government that works for ordinary Americans. So he is transformative in that. So he's recovering um, the old New Deal vision, but I don't think he is embracing it the way it looked under FDR and moving forward because in Lincoln and, and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, all focused on white men primarily. And they were heteronormative white men whom they were trying to defend so that they could make enough money to support their wife and their children. It was very much a nuclear family-based, heteronormative, generally white vision of American society. The Biden administration, I think, has, has shifted that really profoundly by centering children 
That's a big deal because, of course, once you've centered children, you've gotten away from heteronormativity, you've gotten away from race, you've gotten away from everything that previously had defined that. So I think that's transformative. I think that one of the big problems with the idea of spreading democracy around the world or spreading governments around the world that protect human rights is uh, that it's hard to spread democracy without accompanying it with colonialism. And that's a problem. That's an intellectual problem, right? And yeah. I think and I was going to ask about that because, you know, he often uh, talks about this grand battle between democracies and autocracies. And there are a lot of contradictions when you create this sort of black and white global dichotomy. There are a lot of countries around the world that believe in gray in between uh, the American sort of black and white. And, and so I was going to ask you about that. I mean, do you think that's effective? Well, you'll notice he doesn't do it anymore. So right. I think I think what he discovered they pulled back. I think they pulled back um, because, especially because the global South did not jump on board uh, defense of Ukraine. And my sense is that this intellectual issue here of how you spread democracy without colonialism, which is a U.S. problem, maybe another country problem, well as well, but it's a U.S. problem ran up against the rise of the global south. And I think that what they are doing in foreign policy is trying to figure out how to reinforce the idea of human rights primarily, but also self-directed governments. That is not necessarily democracies, but countries that protect human rights under whatever systems they choose, while also getting rid of colonialism and its legacy. And it is my guess that they are doing so by reinforcing the idea of regions, that rather than the US coming in and saying, we're gonna teach you how to do stuff, they're coming in and saying, we're going to reinforce this region's ability to make its own decisions. And I thought one of the things that that really jumped out to me was at the last G20, when the, the US was one of the many countries that talked about the importance of the African Union having a seat at the G20. That was something that Biden was behind. And I saw that as an Americanist, as a real attempt to address the history of colonialism. So, so I think he's also transformative there. It is certainly an important thing. Mm. I'm with you there. And, and this is something we analyze constantly in foreign policy. There's also, you know, the impact of uh, this administration's focus on China and how that carves up the world into China blocks for or against. But as a historian and coming back to sort of your discipline, I'm curious about how you think about the Iraq war and its impact on America's standing in the world and just how much of recent American history post-Iraq war you think has been determined by by that one moment? Boy, that's a complicated question. It really is. I think one of the things that that matters a lot with the Iraq war in domestic policy is the degree to which it created a very deliberate uh, sense in the United States that you were either with the Republicans or you were a terrorist. And that um, that was a deliberate construction on the part of, of political operatives on the Republican Party. And I think it really both badly distorted the United States, but it also badly distorted, I think, um, the foreign affairs in the sense that it suggested that either you supported the United States in its war on terrorism 
or you were anti-capitalist, you were somehow an enemy. So the war in Iraq, but even more especially the war in Afghanistan, I think really was the defining moment for the last, what is it, 20, 20 years or so. And it's one that's interesting now when so many young people don't remember it or were children at the time and can't quite figure out what on earth we were doing. You know, we often talk uh, about what the world can learn from America. I'm curious about when it comes to democracy and governance, what you think America can learn from the world? Well, there are, first of all, America can learn from the world that we are one world and we simply must deal with issues like climate change on a global level. And it worries me a great deal that people in the United States are incredibly ill-informed on events in other countries. And they just don't get a lot of press, which is deeply concerning to me because people simply don't know what's happening. Um, and it's very hard, by the way, to get an in on what's happening if you don't know where Azerbaijan is. Because, you know, how, how do you know how to care when you don't even know what that current event going on is? And so, do you think all, that's a failure of the press or is it is it a lack of interest? Like, where does that come from? Well, I, I, I think it's neither of those things. I think people are interested, but, uh, it you know, if you look at the changes that have happened in the news media and the amount of funding that has come out of the news media, including uh, our foreign correspondents, I will say when I was growing up, the major press organizations all had foreign correspondents on the ground all over the world. And now uh, that's an incredible rarity. And the number of people who can riff, for example, on a president or a, a leader of a foreign country, as so many of the old uh, newscasters could do on, when something happened, is pretty small. I mean, uh, there are some out there who probably could, but um, but a lot of them really can't any longer. So I think it has more to do with the changes in the news media than it has to do with a lack of interest or even the lack of training. Mm -hmm. But the other things that the United States can learn from other countries, I think, is exactly what you and I have been talking about, is what it looks like to create a society that is inclusive versus what it looks like to create a society that is not and what that means for everybody. So there was a wonderful meme that was going around on social media the other day about what has happened in societies who lost their democracies. And the, the reality is, and, and this is something that I really hit on a lot in the United States, is when you lose a democracy as the United States did between 1874 and 1965 in the American South, which became a one-party state in which there was not equality before the law. People did not have the right to have a say in their government. They did not have equal access to resources. What happens is the entire society falls backward and falls into poverty and terrible health care and so on. And it would be nice, I think, if the United States had a bit of a broader lens to recognize that the issues that it certain people tend to think belong to other countries are in fact universal and could just as easily be brought here as they are in other countries. I mean, this is a theme in your writing that, you know, a lot of these things have happened before, uh, even in the United States, when you look at 
fascism or American problems, they are, they're not just new. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when people say this couldn't happen in, you know, we, in America, we couldn't lose democracy, you know, look at our standing and this, we've had a democracy for, you know, 200 years, this could never happen. My answer is always, it already has. I mean, we really did lose, a I mean, even to the degree that we had one, we've never had a fully functioning, uh, pristine democracy. And by the way, never will. That's the whole point of democracies. It's constantly under construction. But the idea that we couldn't end up with a society in which your life is not safe, no matter who you are, unless you are uh, on very good terms with whoever is in control of the government that month, um, is just wrong. We've been here before. And I should say, I mean, that knowledge of knowing that America has been there before uh, also brings with it a sense of humility. I think that that works well um, uh, in foreign policy. We've got so many questions coming in from subscribers. Uh, I'm going to bucket a couple of them together. There's Jack uh, Nillies, who asks whether you think that the current iteration of the Republican Party under Trump um, will become functionally irrelevant. Um, and Victoria Holbrook um, asks, if you were a strategist for the Republican Party today, what would you advise them to do? So I love these questions because, you know, I've been writing about the Republicans now forever. And I have maintained since I began writing about them that they were, in fact, going to, to, to crash and rebuild the way they have three times before. And they have continually defied my expectations, uh, refusing to, to reform from within the way they did um, in the 1890s, for example, which is a great story, or in the 1940s. So if I were, if I, if I really could be the, the empress of the, the Republican Party, I would tell you that it is, even as we speak, dying by suicide or is expiring because it's already dealt itself the fatal blow. The fact that they can't manage to even put to the floor of the House of Representatives funding bills is just simply mind boggling. But if I got to read, first of all, I do think that the ideology of the Republican Party, the true ideology of the Republican Party, that on which it was formed, the idea that society is a, basically a web I and mean, I could explain that more if you want, that that is deeply ingrained in, the, in our DNA because of the American Civil War and those 1850s that I was talking about. That will be reborn, and it will be reborn sooner rather than later. Whether the name on it is the Republican Party or not is another question. So if I got to, to call the shots, and I'm really being speculative here, I would go talk to some of those young Republicans in New York the ones who turned against George Santos and the ones who are horrified by what's happening right now on the floor of Congress because they're young and they want to have careers. And I would say to them, as long as I'm empress, I have a gazillion dollars. I will back you to begin to articulate the values that Eisenhower talked about or that Theodore Roosevelt talked about or that Lincoln talked about. And it's going to be, you're going to be in the wilderness for about eight years, maybe 12 years, but you're going to get people to flock to you. And that I think is going to happen. It's just probably not going to happen the way I outlined it, simply because that ideology is going to rise again. Hmm. I just want you to know if FP could, we would elect you empress. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the final section of your book, and I wanted to come back to hope. It has a hopeful title, Reclaiming America. And you go back to the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence. Talk to us about that. Ahead of next year's election, how do you think the American citizenry, uh, not the government, but the American citizenry, 
how can they better safeguard democracy? So remember, I am an idealist, which means that I believe you change society by changing ideas. And that, to me, that principle has been borne out in our history repeatedly. If you had said to anybody, except for a very few people, in 1927, that within three years, the U.S. population was going to reject the system that was in place and the Republicans were going to enter into a wilderness from which they wouldn't emerge for a generation, people would have had me locked up, right? But, but society really can turn on a dime if people's ideas change, similarly in the 1850s, like I was talking about. So what I was really trying to do in that final section of the book was to remind people that our history is not Either America is great and always has been, we sprang out of the mind of George Washington fully formed and all we got to do is go back to those wonderful days. Nor is it there's a group of people in power who have always kept an, an underclass downtrodden because I think that strips people of agency. What I was trying to say was that when America is truly its best, but, but I don't think there's a period when it hasn't done that, Ordinary people stood up, took power into their own hands, and expanded people's right to be treated equally before the law and to have a say in their government. And they have done so repeatedly in our past, and they will do so again. And the reason that that, that last section is written the way it is, which emphasizes just ordinary people as opposed to the first section, which is all about a few you know, rich white guys and the middle section, which is those strong men and new voices coming up. The reason for that is I think one of the things that really concerns me about the new uh, curricula that places like Florida have, have developed is that yes, they tend to downplay minority history, but they also strip ordinary Americans of agency. They sort of say, you can't do anything, so sit there while we do it to you. And the truth is, our history has changed when ordinary people, unremarkable, ordinary people stand up and say no. That moment is always in our history a time of extraordinary creativity. That's not to say we always make the best decisions, but it's an extraordinary time of artistry and music and new combinations and new ideas and new governmental structures. And it's high time, I think, that we not only move toward that, but that we celebrate that and say, you know, this really could be a triumph just as much as it could be a tragedy. And I'm voting for the triumph. I think we can all agree on that. Buy the book, Democracy Awakening, and you can read an excerpt on our site to whet your appetite. Heather Cox Richardson, thank you for joining us. Real pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was the historian Heather Cox Richardson. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at China's economy with three experts. Everyone keeps saying China's slowing down. Well, how bad is it and how does it affect the world? That is it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time.
Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.